Welcome to Stage, the Streaming Age podcast. Today, we're delighted to hand the microphone to the renowned musician and wildlife sound recordist, Chris Watson, who presents a two-part podcast episode of Voices and Bioacoustics from Freakwave, the tsunami of collaboration exploring the sonic realms of the oceans that has brought together a community of 84 world-renowned sound artists, composers, and ocean, well, freaks. Held by Cal Mike von Hauswolf, the very same composer of her theme music, commissioned and produced by TVA21 Academy, Freakwave has been taking on new lives on stage this week. Remember to check out our platform on www.stage.tba21.org and if you like this episode, which we really hope you do, please subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Don't forget to share it with your friends and if you have a minute to spare, please do leave us a review. Without further ado, this is Stage. My name is Carl Michael von Hauswolf. Uh, I'm the artist curator for Freakwave. Carl Michael, when and how did you come up with this concept, this idea of, of Freakwave? What's the story behind it? Originally, it was uh, called, and still is, I mean, in, 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 in certain ways, uh, Freak Out. And it was a live installation where I invited 12 sound artists uh, from various uh, genres and fields to to join in and and, and uh, uh, collaborate in a large sound installation, and then we decided to um, to name it Freak Wave, and focus on uh, on the ocean and water and so on, and and and, and use the internet as a as as a vehicle. So tell me about the the content. How how is it designed, and how do artists contribute to it? We have done seven uh, mixers, like online mixers, where the audience can actually mix the sounds. And these, on these seven uh, mixers, there are 12 stereo channels. So 12 times seven artists were invited. That is altogether 84 artists. And they have been uh, designed to uh, designate it uh, to use uh, frequency ranges, parts of it, so that, uh, for instance, one artist gets a, a low frequency, then you, you move up to the mid frequencies and the high frequencies. And then when you play it all together, it becomes uh, 12 pieces, becomes one large uh, audio piece. So originally there's 84 artists invited to contribute. But the thing I like about it, and I'm one of the contributing artists, is that the audience then get to mix and remix those pieces and, and create their own artworks from their own personal mixes. Yes, I mean that's it's the point. Uh, not only the point is not only to have the artists actually uh, collaborating, but also that the artists actually collaborating with the audience uh, uh, and so on. So you don't have this kind of normal consuming situation. You also have a creative situation. And were the I mean I remember I was given a specific frequency range. Um, how were they allocated geographically? How were the oceans allocated? Well, uh, I mean, in general, we all know that the oceans 
uh, are connected. Actually, everything is co a connected. The oceans are connected with lakes, rivers, glaciers, uh, etc., and the rain and whatever. But uh, we, we we designed uh, uh, seven trajectories around the world, so various artists coming from various places on Earth uh, could actually use the sounds from their environments, more or less. I mean, so uh, some artists around. Uh, North America, Australia, Japan, they were like using the, the Pacific Ocean as, a, as an instrument or as a tool or, or to collaborate with. So this wasn't just seawater sound piece people who were landlocked could contribute sounds from from any liquid source yes i mean the 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 the, the concept is basically water uh, and then we have the oceans as the largest kind of basin of water but i mean the the artist could use the concept of water so for instance they could use the uh, the letters h2o for instance uh, or they can use tap tap water or they are their own lakes or whatever they have as long as it had to something to do with with water and the the oceans and what were your what are the aims of the project apart from producing this astonishing unique piece of work which artists and also the listeners collaborate with what what do you what's your hope and aims for the outcome. The, the the basic aim and hope is 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 that the this uh, large uh, work uh, promotes the uh, cleaning of the oceans, to take care of the oceans, to to be able to uh, to uh, to live in this world without pollutions and so on. And and uh, for for us humans, maybe to be be able to collaborate with with the nature instead of just like uh, exploiting it for for our own uh, um, sake. So, so it's a, it's it's a kind of an activist uh, situation where where we want uh, we want people to be aware of of the world as it is. Yeah, I mean that's I think that's a, that that's a good point. So people not only aware of this space, I mean the largest habitat on the planet, but the challenges that it faces because a lot of those challenges, and I'm thinking of noise pollution, of course, is hidden from our ears because it's under the surface. Yes, I mean. Noise pollution it, it goes hand in hand with the ocean overall because uh, it is something that uh, that us humans don't know so much about. It's actually the ocean and what's what's sort of hidden underneath the surface uh, um, and so on in, in the in the depths of the oceans. And we we I mean we, we we know something about dolphins and whales and other mammals in in the sea. We know things about fish. We know things about what's going on, but it's very little. And of course noise pollution created by mining corporations or etc etc large vessels traveling uh, all over the oceans and so on it's something that we humans don't really know anything about but but the the the, the, the mammals and, and and the environment in the oceans certainly know something about it because it's it's really getting really really bad Mm, and they can't escape it, of course, once they're under the surface. I mean, that's one of the really cool things I love about this project and being able to contribute to it is that connection between not only the art but the science and that engagement of public understanding 
with the challenges the ocean faces, but through this really beautiful medium of the mixer being able to blend all these sounds from oceans around the world and and make your own mix of these places, then the more people know about what's there, then the more their attention is drawn to the challenges and how to solve them, because noise pollution in the ocean can be solved, but people's awareness of it needs to be raised, I think. Yes, and I think art is a good uh, way to do it. I mean, art is not so difficult as many people think. I mean, of course, you have underlying uh, underlying layers that might might be a bit, uh, you know, intellectually challenging and so on. But otherwise, art is just it's for people. I mean, for people to use, you know, uh, and. Um, and you don't have to understand everything about art in order to appreciate it and be able to use it as a tool. And um, I think this is very important. Have you done your own particular mix of one of the oceans? And do you have a one in mind that you could play as? I have not yet done a recording of one, although I have been doing it live. But I would like to play a version uh, that uh, the composer, uh, musician Jim O'Rourke made for us. Carl Michael, thank you very much. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. So I'm Valeria Vergara. I'm a marine mammal research scientist with a Oceanwise Conservation Association in Vancouver, BC. And uh, I uh, have been studying beluga whales, really, for the better part of the last uh, two decades. And uh, my, my fieldwork takes place in the St. Lawrence River Estuary, that is a location in eastern Canada that is the southernmost part of beluga distribution. Uh, there's a, a, a population of belugas there that is geographically isolated from, from other belugas in the world and that is very endangered. And I also studied them in uh, both the, the high Arctic, the high Canadian Arctic, and in the subarctic, an, an area called Churchill, the Churchill River estuary. So, Valeria, I know we've had conversations before, but for listeners who, who don't know, much about beluga whales. Could you just start off by describing um, beluga for me, please? Absolutely. So beluga whales are an Arctic species. Um, they are related to narwhals and uh, they have a circumpolar uh, distribution. You only find them in 
Arctic and subarctic areas of the world, except for the St. Lawrence population that, as I mentioned, is a little bit farther south. They are extremely social animals. They have a very complex communication system that very likely has much to do with their complex society. They live long lives. They have long periods of raising their young and parental parental care. Um, they form communities and alliances and friendships that last forever. They have a very fission fusion kind of society. Um, and curiously, unlike any other whale, they are able to bend their necks, which makes makes it easier for a person studying them or looking at them to know who they are looking at. <laughs> Could you give me a, a, um, a physical description of the animals, please, and, and the size? Oh, of they... course, that's that's pretty key. They are very white <laughs> um, because they 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 are an Arctic species. So much like you know, Arctic foxes or polar bears, belugas are white. They're not always white. They're born actually with a very dark coloration, and they slowly throughout the years turn whiter and whiter. So juvenile belugas are sort of like a grayish color. Do, do they need to? Sorry to interrupt. Do they need to be white to to avoid predation? Well, how do you think that's evolved? Yeah, I, we're not sure, but uh, one of the hypotheses is that that is usually coined is that uh, it's an anti predator strategy that it you know they blend easier with the ice around them with their environment. So yes. And what size are are they? They are, uh, they reach about 3.5 meters uh, in length and males are a little uh, bigger than females and they have like broader head and broader shoulders uh, than females. So there's a little bit of sexual dimorphism in, in the species. And you came to a particular interest in their vocal communication and behavior. I mean, and do you, do you hear them often? Are they particularly vocal species? I uh, have fallen in love with beluga whales. The <laughs> minute I started studying them because they're so loquacious, they they never stop vocalizing. They are constantly communicating. Um, they, that's why they I don't you probably are aware that they're called canaries of the sea because they're very well known for their incredibly rich and complex repertoire of vocalizations that they produce. And are these are these frequencies within our frequency range or ultrasonic or infrasonic? Uh, both. They uh, have a lot of the sounds they make are very much within our frequency range, especially their whistles and chirps. And this is this is what uh, sea canaries. But they also pronounce a lot of sounds that you can only notice once you open your software and look at the sounds on spectrograms and you see that there's all this communication happening on ultrasonic frequencies. So above above 20 kilohertz and we don't hear that when we record them but we notice that those calls are there once we look at them in spectrograms Uh, 
And do you think those those ultrasonic sounds are they communicative or, or is it echolocation? Uh, no, they uh, both. So uh, they make clicks and buzzes for echolocation, and that's one thing. Uh, but these ultrasonic sounds that we call the high-frequency pulsed calls are definitely not entwined with echolocation. They're just uh, calls that are formed by very broadband pulses, but those pulses are uh, larger temporarily than than single echolocation clicks. And uh, there's some amount of frequency modulation in the calls and uh, they're they're definitely used for communication purposes and those are your study areas the areas you, you described i mean st lawrence and, and churchill and the high arctic are, are the animals free to communicate or do they face any challenges with their um, vocalizations in those areas that's a really great question chris and and it really has to do with the location shipping traffic vessel traffic traffic anthropogenic activities in the water and on the water create a huge amount of noise that interferes with the ability of not just belugas, but any marine mammal species that uses sound to communicate with each other, to use their sonar efficiently, to find prey efficiently. Mm. If you think that these, these animals rely on sound for pretty much every aspect of their lives, then underwater noise pollution is, is a problem in our oceans. And and I, I need to emphasize that just as uh, the fact that sound transmits so beautifully in water, that fact is something that has helped marine mammals use this, this medium to communicate. On the same token, disturbing sounds, essentially unwanted sound, noise, also transmits very well. And it, it becomes a problem in terms of marine mammals communicating effectively. And this varies from area to area. So the Arctic is still a considerably quiet place, although because we're losing ice at such a fast pace, areas that were previously pristine are now opening up to navigation and to all sorts of human activities. So the Arctic is becoming a noisier place. And then the St. Lawrence River estuary has always been a highly industrial area. And uh, belugas face incredible amounts of noise um, in, in in the St. Lawrence. And that's part of what I've been studying for the last few years. Ah, so have you, during this period of, of lockdown, yeah. which, which are, you know, is, is very recent, have you noticed any, any changes to the animal's behavior or, or how they communicate in areas where you would imagine shipping noise has been reduced in the last few months? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. And I know uh, that... Many colleagues of, of mine across the world have identified much lower noise levels coinciding with a decrease in, in shipping traffic due to the lockdown. In the St. Lawrence, we haven't analyzed our data yet. We had record, uh, hydrophones in two uh, key locations of the estuary, and uh, uh, we had them deployed for a couple of months uh, this year, and uh, we are just about to start looking at that data. Uh, so we're very excited to see what we find. Yeah, well, me so I'd love, I'd love you to get back in touch and let us know what your findings are once you've had the opportunity. So yeah, sounds, sounds great. So are you so with regards to the the, the future and and how shipping noise may be controlled? I mean, after the lockdown period, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the animals' future in the St Lawrence? You know, I have to say, I am cautiously optimistic because I think that. Noise is something that we can do something about. 
Uh, when you stop producing noise, noise pollution stops. It's not like a, a chemical pollution where you stop polluting and it li pollution lingers in the environment for decades at a time. Noise is, you know, you stop the noise and the noise pollution stops. It's immediate. And we are becoming more and more educated about the, the dangers and the perils of underwater noise for, for cetacean species. And so there are things that can be done about it, you know, creating quiet sound sanctuaries, no-go zones where, you know, boats are not allowed, especially areas that are, for example, reproductively important for species like, like belugas. We can um, ask people to reduce the speed of their boats or, or for captains to reduce the speed of their ships. And there's voluntary measures uh, for these going on. In, in areas like the St. Lawrence or like the BC coast for southern resident killer whales. And these, these measures have proven very effective in reducing underwater noise. So there are things that can be done. And I'm hoping that we're, we're slowly moving toward that kind of awareness and willingness to, to apply these measures. Mm, that's encouraging. I think you've given us such beautiful descriptions of the animals and the voices. I think everybody really would like to hear some. So could you leave us with a track that has a particular significance for you and, and describe how you made the recording? Sure. So um, I think I would love to show you this clip of maternal contact calls that I recorded in the Churchill River Estuary. And the reason I like maternal contact calls is that they're very different from the whistly and chirpy, very complex repertoire of beluga whales. Maternal contact calls are a broadband kind of pulsed call that are repeated over and over again. And in this this really short clip, it's from a long series of, of those calls that I recorded in the in, in the river when a very small newborn calf that you know you could literally see its fetal folds. It was so little. It was on its own and it was right by our, our little boat. We were drifting with the current. And um, and yeah, you could you could hear these calls. The water was turbid and you could imagine maybe the mom calling the calf because they were clearly separated. We eventually lost sight of the calf and, we, and the, the calls stopped and we could only hope that mom and calf got uh, reunited. I think this is the beauty of acoustics that they offer a window into the behavior and the world of a species in a way that, that just using your eyes wouldn't cut it. For species that are so acoustics, you, you, you understand so much more about what is happening just by listening. Valeria, it's been such a pleasure listening to you and, and learning more about your work. And uh, I'm looking forward to, to hearing this track. So let's, let's play that, that recording out you've just described. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk to me. Oh, you're very welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me on. This next recording from Valeria is a large mixed herd of beluga.
my name is Finpoi Peterson, and uh, I'm an Icelandic uh, visual artist. Present myself as an uh, visual artist with great interest in sound. I work with uh, mostly with uh, sound-based installations, and uh, the reason I present myself as an uh, visual artist is that uh, I'm sometimes conf- confused with. Uh, not confused, but I'm presented as as uh, like a sound artist or audio artist, which uh, I kind of never present myself as because uh, me it's it's a kind of specific kind of uh, field of uh, artist like video artist and and that's you know so the reason I I do this is is that I approach uh, sound as a material to to uh, work with you know. Mm, that's that's a really good term, Finn. And I know I mean it's sort of multidisciplinary. That that's how I would describe your work because it crosses lots of the boundaries, as you say, sort of sound, visuals, you know, electronics, digital art, analog systems. So I know, and I'm, I'm, it's, you know, it's been my pleasure and privilege to work with you many times in Iceland. And I know specifically because, like me, you live on an island, so you have a particular strong affinity with the seas and the oceans. Tell, tell the listeners something about that mapping project you did a few years ago because that was astonishing. Yeah, I had a exhibition up in East, in Eskifjörður. It's a, it's a little small uh, village uh, uh, was built up and based on, on like a fishery and it has been dying. And uh, uh, what I wanted to do is to, is to kind of uh, got a hold of, of uh, this um, old description of like places out from this village which uh, f- fishermen during the old days you know they went rowing there and uh, these were descriptions about how to gather and uh, for instance that you have to aim on this mountain or this cliff uh, and then you uh, then you when you saw then this farm was kind of uh, beneath this stone or cliff then you were exactly on this spot. It was like an ancient uh, GPS or something like this. So we're actually talking about how people would navigate across the surface of the ocean. Yeah, and uh, th- these were called uh, like uh, fishing. I mean, these were, were uh, like fishing spots, or we call them also like fishing banks. Yeah, and uh, uh, these were kind of like uh, these were like a gold mines because uh, sailors they you know they kept these kind of these spots kind of uh, really private and for themselves because it's kind of uh, you know they knew about these uh, pits and stuff like this you know which you can fish on. So what I did, you know, I mean the fish industry has gone through kind of fewer hands these days you know because i mean like uh, the fish the industry is kind of uh, trawlers and stuff like this so these small kind of fishery guys the guys with the private boats and stuff like this they came up with this quota system for fish you know uh, like 20 years ago so you have- yes yeah in sort of individual businesses yeah, yeah. They, they, they kind of, uh, you know, because they had this, you know, they, they came up with this quota system for fish, you know, uh, like 20 years ago. So you, you had to apply then and you, you, you strictly, you can't bring a single coat caught in without, uh, uh, you know. Uh, a license. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A license. Or, but but uh, what I did was that I, I took these uh, descriptions from this uh, old, uh, these old descriptions about these, uh, these places, and I made a, a kind of fictionary, uh, if you can say so, spots on the sea. 
which were kind of a square fictionary spots, and I named them. This description of of the of these uh, of these plotted images were uh, I made them in a, in a, in a software uh, in my three D uh, program, just like a, a, a ocean or sea kind of a plugin in this uh, 3D program. And I uh, plotted out uh, these spots. But these spots were fictionary because, I mean, ocean, sea, and water is is kind of generally kind of a zero situation because, I mean, in calm sea is kind of just like a flat mirror, you know. Mm, yes. And you have to have like a, a, this underwave and you have to have a, to have a wind. Uh, you have to have a, a position of the moon. And you have to have all these uh, different things to make um, the surface to behave in, in certain ways, you know, when you see it, you know. So, That's really beautiful sort of triangulation between the gravitational forces of the moon and the wind and the currents and the tides. Yeah, I get that. It's, it's, it's a homage to this, uh, if you can say, these spots which made this little village to what it is today. If you know what I mean. Yeah. How was it? How was it presented? How did people experience the work? It was. I was. I was quite normal. I'm never nervous about my exhibition. Uh, I mean, my, my pieces and when I exhibit and stuff like. That. But in this case, I mean, these were really hardcore sailors, you know, in this little village, you know. And I knew that, you know, kind of uh, this art business is kind of, you know, this is kind of is something you have fun with. But, I mean, get a serious job, man, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I was really nervous about that because when I was starting up with this, with this contemporary thing, because I have been always been on, on the side kind of this... Uh, like uh, working and dealing with with uh, sound in my my art and and uh, and this was really kind of uh, art thing for them. Yes, yeah. And I was really nervous about uh, how they would kind of uh, take this and if they would understand it. And it was uh, you know, but surprisingly, it was really it was really well received because they totally understood what was going on. Could they, did you represent the surface of the sea in a space? Yeah, I, I did. I did. I made these uh, these surfaces like a, a grid. It's, it's a kind of a, a grid with vector. Oh, I understand. Like sort of computer three D yeah. mapping. So I yeah. So I uh, then I trans transferred it in, into a, a, a like this Illustrator format, this vector point thing. And I plot it out in a, in a like a big plotter, which I change and manipulate uh, like ink pens, and I mix ink with a with a bit of a water and a bit of a sea, and uh, mixed ink in, and I plot it out on a paper, and uh, I, I exhibit it with uh, on on a, on a paper, like a like a drawing, ink drawings on paper. Oh, like a spectrograph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then this is a method I've been using for quite a long time because it. It has been a difficult for me to kind of because I normally use uh, 3D programs to uh, sketch and and and, and uh, make plans and, and blueprints and stuff of the, of my installations, and it's always it has always been a difficulty for me to kind of take it to present it or or uh, exhibit like uh, present and exhibit like uh, sketches and drawings these drawings. Yeah, but, like so, work in had, progress. Yeah, because they have the attention to be like a super flat you know and 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 boring you know 
So, but I mean, in this case, is is kind of I, I brought it kind of from digital to analog again into this thing, and because I used like this uh, uh, this ink ink pens and mixed this uh, ink uh, with uh, um, two or three different colors and uh, which were in layer in in the uh, in the ink pit, you know, you have a slight. You have a kind of a slight uh, a difference, uh, color uh, variations, like from black to brownish, you know, in the drawing. And is this, I mean, obviously, you know, this clear and powerful affinity with the seas locally, but what drew you? More widely to the whole idea of freak wave. Why? Why did you decide to make a contribution? What interested you about it? Well, uh, most likely the, the the waves and 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 the the surface because I have been using water on and off since nineteen ninety one. I've been doing these large scale water installations, and uh, I did the first one in nineteen ninety one here in Reykjavik which is now a permanent installation here in uh, the Reykjavik uh, Energy Headquarters in, in Reykjavik, distributors of hot and cold water. And uh, I've been using water. I mean, water has been used for ages to demonstrate sound waves, you know. Yes, like yeah. Drop in a, like a drop in a still water, you know, you make a ripple. It's the same thing when you make like a sound in a room which kind of bumps to the walls and back again, you know. So it's the same thing which happens on the surface of water. It makes a circular drawing. Like a sort of standing wave yeah. that oscillates. Yeah. yeah. And this, these, these waves I have been working with this, uh, as I said, like on and off with other pieces and installations on and off uh, since 1991 and, and since 2005, since I had like my first kind of permanent big installation here in Iceland, I could present because I've been trying to offer this to galleries and museums uh, since 1991 to to make like a, a big pools and uh, for exhibitions and stuff like this. And for some reason, like galleries and museum directors, they they have not been willing to uh, let like a non non artist like me filling their gallery spaces with what. You know, since I had like my first one, I first installation here in Reykjavik, and and then a bit later on, I had uh, um, an exhibition with Sean Kelly in New York in two thousand and nine, and after that, I mean, you know, the gates open for this, and I've been kind of working quite much with these uh, uh, big installations and and developing them and stuff like that. So I've been showing them uh, quite over the place uh, uh, through the years. I'm still in, still. Doing some some of them now, but it has been a little bit more quiet now about them. So, and uh, did did Mickey did Carl Michael experience some of these works? Is that how he came to invite you to contribute to Freakwave? No, no, no. We we have been he uh, we met in uh, Gothenburg in, in in Sweden. I had an exhibition. Uh, up there when he was uh, curating uh, uh, exhibition there. No, I just wondered how how he came about inviting you, you know, recently to contribute to Freakway. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 probably the reason is that I, I was a pro- part of the Freakout group. The kind of Freakwave is is a kind of a uh, a kind of a continue of of, uh, of this Freakout. It was a group group of 
Yeah, I understand. So, so what's your contribution to, to Freakwave? What frequency did you get and what sea area were you working in? I got the frequency, frequency uh, 50 to 60 hertz. Oh, wow. It's low. Yeah, which is rather low. But I even went lower, you know, in my water installations, big installations. I normally use from one up to maybe f- uh, f- uh, highest. Highest I've been in this water installation is 7.83 hertz. Wow, wow. In a piece which is called Earth. And in this contribution to the uh, freak wave is uh, behind their interference wave of 7.3 uh, 7.8 oh, I see so you're modulating yeah, yeah, yeah. it with using that as a modulation frequency I put this recording I did up in who shall we you were in Walt yes in the north yeah and I uh, look up, um, I mean what you hear in the background of that recording is is kind of the, the sea these these shrimps and the cod and stuff like this which is kind of which was like a hydrophone uh, recording which i did there so you is this in scalfandy bay where you made those yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's one of my favorite places it's where the humpback whales hang out isn't it in the summer whales yeah yeah it's, it's like a, the uh, but I, what i did is that i took that i, I mean like this it's like a one minute it's like a one minute thing and i took this recording and i made a little composition but but what i did in the composition which you which is maybe difficult to hear, but conceptually, I did this to kind of merge it, maybe more into kind of the surface of of the the ocean, and also uh, to connect it to the surface of the ocean and the the Earth in general. I uh, isolated out kind of uh, like this fifty to sixty in equalization. 50 60 uh, hertz, but then I started to play around with 60, nave to, to with with 50 hertz, and 57.83 hertz, and uh, and merged them together. So I, I got a, a, an interference, low frequency interference of 7.83, which is uh, which is also called the Schumann Schumann resonance, which is uh, the pulsation or the heartbeat of the Earth. That's really appropriate for that part of the world, Iceland, because the the uh, the fault line goes really close to Husavik, so you have that vibration of the earth and the sounding. So I get that. That's a really good um, yeah. idea linking those things. But the, the, the seven point eight three is this human resonance. Is is actually the, the frequency which uh, Nikola Tesla was. Uh, he used that frequency to kind of when he was making these. Uh, these towers, these uh, electric towers, to send like uh, AC electronics uh, kind of wireless mm-hmm. between towers. He paid attention to this frequency, this 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 uh, pulsation or this heartbeat of the Earth, to get kind of the lowest lowest uh, independence or what you, if you can say that uh, from the Earth. So the you know when you have like you know then then you send you know when it's uh, kind of. Uh, in the lowest peak, then you send like a, a the uh, spike between the towers, you know. Finn, that's a f- fantastic description of your contribution to to Freakwave. Finn, thank you very much for your contribution. But my, my pleasure.
Stage, the Streaming Age podcast was brought to you by Tizia Morlemisa Art Contemporary. This was a co-commission between Stage and TBA21 Academy. Special thanks to Markus Reimann. Remember to visit our website to experience Freakwave on www.stage.tba21.org. If you enjoyed listening and want to stay up to date with future episodes, please do subscribe to our podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whichever platform you use. Reviews and shares are always deeply appreciated. Today's episode was dedicated to Freakwave. The interviews were conducted by Chris Watson. The editor-in-chief of stage is Francesca Thyssen-Bornemisa. Carlos Surroz is the director of Thyssen-Bornemisa Art Contemporary. Soledad Gutiérrez is our content curator. Our producers are Soledad and myself, Igor Ramírez. Ina Speranda and Gidra Bellodova are our project managers. Elena Utrilla is our production assistant. This episode was edited by Anna Esteve, and our theme music is by Carl Michael von Hauswolf, the same Carl Michael from Freakwave. Thank you for listening. Thank you.